happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 166 for February the 26th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, and I, uh, I'm actually in the basement of our church today. We're uh, doing a little different scheduling here because I am so excited to be joined by Susan Bearden, who is on East Coast Time, and a 9 p.m. Central would not be a good start time, so we always make, make some adjustments. So, Susan, welcome, and where are you connecting from tonight? Um, I'm connecting from Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Awesome. Now, I know you're a Floridian. Did, do you all still have some Florida home connections, or are you permanently Virginia-based? Absolutely. No, we still have our house in Florida, and uh, we go back as often as we can, especially in the wintertime, uh, when the weather in Florida is much more temperate than it is in the metro D.C. area. Yeah, absolutely. And so for people who don't know you, um, what uh, what are you up to and how are you connected to educational technology these days? Okay, well, I am currently serving as the Chief Innovation Officer for the Consortium for School Networking, or COSIN. COSIN is a membership and advocacy organization for school technology leaders, uh, CTOs, CIOs, uh, directors of technology, um, etc. And uh, so I myself am a former school technology director, as Wes mentioned. I used to live in Florida, and I was uh, the technology director at an independent school in Melbourne, Florida, right near Cape Canaveral, uh, for seven years. And that was before I moved to D.C., and then I spent a year as a fellow in the Office of Educational Technology at the U.S. Department of Education. And then I was consulting for a while, and now I'm working for COSIN. Awesome. Um, so who are some of your compadres as, when you were in D.C.? Um, I was I'm, th I'm trying to think. I was just I was in Florida in, uh, in Colorado um, last year. Zach, and Chase. Zach Chase. That's right. Were you overlapping with him much when you were in D.C.? Overlap. I actually missed Zach by a month. I actually filled his position and I inherited his desk. Hey. <laughs> There so, you go. Juju. So thank you, Zach Chase, for uh, leaving that desk in great condition for me. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I, of course, I picked his brain a little bit when, um, you know, we were out there. Scott McLeod had a group out for uh, this graduate program certificate that they were putting together. And uh, we were actually in Zach's district. And, uh, boy, what an experience that was. You were there for the transition to the new administration, too, correct? I was there. I spent six months in each administration. It was an interesting time, too, working with the federal government. Yes, absolutely. Lots of lots of wisdom and lots of uh, lots of experiences. Well, tonight we are going. Oh, and I am the um, I always have to think about this technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, uh, which is a private independent school here in Oklahoma City. Uh, I was the tech director for four years and I'm really the first one to have this educational technology uh, coaching role. But I'm back in the classroom teaching fifth and sixth grade, which is fun. And um, tonight we're going to be talking about different uh, news articles that have happened recently uh, in technology. And we'll just kind of see where, where where things take us. But uh, Jason Neifer is um, on assignment, as it were. He has a series of conferences that he is attending. And I think I saw a tweet today where uh, one of the EdTech SR listeners was actually, you know, a fan in the audience as he was presenting. He's doing something crazy at NCCE, like seven different sessions. I just, I think that is really, you know, something. I mean, well, we can fill in the blank for, yeah, that is, that is tough. Um, did I say episode 166? I think, yeah, that's right. Huh. 
All right, somehow my numbering got off in our document. If you'd like to, speaking of documents, um, take a look at the links that we have. You can go to edtechsr.com slash links. And we have a Google Doc there where there are a bunch of uh, different uh, links that, oh, this is just not updated. Yeah, that's what's going on. Oh, perhaps my iPad is not online. Technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> so let me open up the document and we never get through all of our links. It is always, you know, more than, more than we have time for. Um, and so I will, if it, it just depending, I don't know if, if you've put some in or want to, want to, uh, go to some, but I'll, uh, I'll start us off. And I think this, we, we often have to say on the show, it's not a political show, but there are certainly ways in which educational or technology um, and the implications for technology, you know, brush up against uh, politics. And so underneath the politics heading here, here are our headings tonight. So uh, we have media literacy, politics, security, tech, cold war, Google, Microsoft, a miscellaneous category. And then we'll do some geeks of the week at the end. So I dropped a couple in because of the caucuses. And I think we talked last week on the show about the debacle in, um, uh, New Hampshire, right? Where they had an app and it didn't report and they said, Oh, we didn't test this really well. So there were a couple articles. This one was from, um, uh, CNET on February 13th. It says Nevada Democrats to use iPads loaded with Google forms to track caucus. And it, that one talks about, I think 2000 iPads that they were providing to volunteers, uh, with instructions. And then, uh, the Washington Post had an article yesterday on February 25th, hard work saved Nevada's caucuses. It may not have been enough, but that says that the Google forms actually worked, uh, and were good. And then uh, Vox and Recode had an article yesterday that said the Nevada caucus tool is an iPad and a Google form. And then that includes screenshots and step-by-step instructions that they had provided for their volunteers. Um, so, Susan, with your experience in educational technology, are, are you surprised that Google forms rode to the rescue of the caucusers uh, apparently in Nevada? Yeah, I am. I um First of all, let me just start off by saying that I absolutely love Google Forms. I'm uh, surprised that it was used for elections. I guess I and I understand that it was kind of a a stopgap trying to fill in because the other app um, was not working. Um, So I'm interested. Well, what's interesting for me is because I'm thinking just and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I'm assuming they were using a commercial uh, Gmail account to create those forms. And I actually haven't, um, I'm just, I'm just wondering about the confidentiality of that data. I don't know the answer to that question, whether, um, that data is, is confidential when it's used in Google forms. Do you know, Wes, you're a Google guru. Well, I mean, it's going to be encrypted with, you know, HTTPS. Um, but as far, but of course, you know, and this is a great thing to talk to Susan about is data privacy and the different <laughs> issues which are around that. Um, so, you know, it's of course not only what happens in transit, you know, to the, to the data, but it's also, you know, where it goes and stays and all that kind of stuff. I would, I would feel pretty good about that in terms of Google and their, uh, end to end security and things like that. There were a couple other tidbits in the article that were interesting. One of them was saying, you know, and I think this happened in New Hampshire too, that they struggled so much to get the phones to work. Or to have enough people, you know, manning the phones to be able to answer and respond. And it was really funny in one of those articles too, they said some people were just taking a picture of the results and then texting it in. <laughs> and so that was the way that, you know, they were sub- 
submitting. And it, it seems like kind of a sign of the times, perhaps, you know, where we think that technology is going to, you know, be uh, a wonderful way of streamlining everything. But, you know, I certainly found this as a, as a tech director that many, many things are much more complicated than people would understand and appreciate. And the joke <clears throat> that we still have sometimes is like, we're not reheating burritos in the microwave here, you know, or we're not just watering trees. I mean, we have a great maintenance team, but like our son, uh, two summers ago, you know, worked on our maintenance team and, and he did that. Like it was really hot and he had to go around and water these trees. It didn't take a whole lot of expertise to do that, but you know, the level of complexity for a lot of computing tasks, especially if you talk about data and then you talk about the security and those different layers. Did, did you ever run into that, uh, Susan, in your experience in terms of the challenge of communicating maybe to other administrators and, and others as far as the complexity of tasks and then how much time was going to be required to, you know, implement something? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think anytime you're implementing a new system, it always takes longer than you think it will. Um, and there will always be uh, things that you didn't necessarily anticipate. Um, and there will always be, um, and that's one of the reasons why I think um, testing is so important and why piloting is so important. Like just, just putting something like this in an ed tech space, like if I were going to be utilizing a new system of communications within um, a school district, I would start it out with a pilot program and I would test it out and I would uh, get feedback from the users to find out, did they receive the message? Uh, did they have to tweak their settings in some way and so, so to receive the, the message in a timely fashion? Um, were there any problems that would have prevented it? One thing I was thinking about was, I'm assuming that all of the iPads used for uh, the results had some sort of cellular data plan because you never know in a location if you have access to Wi-Fi or if that Wi-Fi is going to work. Um, that's definitely something I have found in my professional career um, is that, and even if you think, well, I can just use a cellular connection. Well, what if you're in a building where there isn't a strong cellular connection or you're in a part of town where it just doesn't have a good signal? So to really guarantee that it would be foolproof, would you actually go with the device and the connectivity that you're planning to use and test it in every single location? Um, which, I mean, these are the kinds of things that people don't think about. Uh, and we're not just talking about like, you know, caucuses, but we're just talking about um, education technology in, in general. Um, did they have technical support available uh, to to troubleshoot issues? Was there an issue where there was an unexpected amount of traffic as like with the phone lines? I didn't have enough people there answering phones. You could also have that problem with say um, internet bandwidth. If there's too many users streaming videos at one time and you have a bottleneck in your network. So there's a lot of parallels I see in this particular project to uh, some of the challenges that school tech directors face in trying to implement education technology. It's never as simple as people think it is. And I always tell people that school technology directors, being a school tech director is like being a, um, one of those under like underwater um, ballet dancers or, or synchronized swimmers where you are, everything looks so smooth and placid on the surface and you're just paddling like mad underneath the water just to keep things up and running. And I think that's uh, the way a lot of, technology projects are where people just don't really fully understand the complexity of what goes in underneath it in order to make it be successful. And like uh, technology is one of those things that, you know, everybody expects it to work. And uh, if it doesn't work, then, you know, if you're the person in charge, you know, people are glaring at you and shooting arrows in your direction. Oh, yeah. So 
Yeah, I think I read, an, I didn't put this one in the links, but uh, the person in charge of, of the caucuses uh, in, well, was it in Iowa or New Hampshire? Iowa was where they had the problems with the app, I think, if initially, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I think they, you know, stepped down. They, they were, uh, they, they lost their job. So, I mean, these, these things can, can be high stakes for sure. Um, so I had a chance on Friday of last week to visit with a longtime friend that I met shortly after I came to Oklahoma in 2006. His name is James Deaton and he works for a consortium of about 26, uh, universities and colleges now working on internet too and a lot of research stuff. But when James was at OneNet, which is our Oklahoma State Network, uh, he was pulled into a project where they were looking at the precincts in Oklahoma and, you know, tying all those together. And he was retelling the story. And as I recall, it was going to cost something like half a million dollars for AT&T to send specific circuits to all of these. And what they ended up figuring out, and, and he was part of this design, I think it was like Juniper VPN, you know, switches or something. And what they basically did was they paid Cox or their local provider, you know, for just a high-speed cable modem. And then these, because because the in, in Oklahoma we do have paper, um, you know, ballots that you that punch holes or whatever, and so they're read electronically. But all of those systems have to be on the same local area network or look like that. And okay. so, in order to create that across the state, um, you know, the, the initial proposal was this half million dollar. Well, I think it ended up costing something like fifteen thousand dollars a year to pay these service providers and then to put these, you know, Juniper boxes in. And so anyway, I knew James had played a role in that. But um, last week, I think we put a, a link to a, or did we? It was, it's a Microsoft um, uh, project that, and, and if I didn't put it in, I need to go find it. Uh, they're doing, it's a pilot in Wisconsin, <clears throat> but it's a box that basically uh, creates, it, it's to read ballots and to, to tally them, but it is to, to create, I think, two different pieces of paper. And, you know, one is going basically for the auditability of this. And, you know, kudos to Microsoft in that example, because it's a really small, I think it's even a municipal election. It's not in a statewide, it's not in a federal, and they are going through this process of vetting and piloting and, and things like that. So, I think, that's yeah, that sounds like the way that you want to, you know, do something like that. So feel bad for those that are, you know, caught in the crossfire, but it certainly, it's uh, something that, you know, you, you can, you never want to overpromise and underdeliver. You, you yeah. want to try and, and do the reverse. Uh, and the stakes, the stakes are high with all this. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, here's a segue to a Google one, which is a privacy and security one. So this will be right up your alley. Um, I, I, I don't know that this, this article is a bit of a, of a clickbait, um, but it's from Vox on February 21st. And the title is Google's education tech has a privacy problem. Well, what the article talks about is a state attorney general who has filed a lawsuit in New Mexico, uh, claiming that Google, you know, is tracking kids after the bell. And evidently the same attorney general whose last name is Baldettis um, has filed, you know, some other lawsuits. Um, and so it's talking about COPA, the uh, Children's Online Protection Act. We've, we've talked on the show in the last few weeks about YouTube and some of the differences and the impact that that's had on branded accounts for, you know, schools and, and things like that. So, you know, this is not a 
ruling by a court. This is a lawsuit. And it's certainly something that's, you know, the, the, what the, the Google response to this was, you know, um, Quote, this is Jose Castaneda, a spokesperson for Google, talking to Recode. These claims are factually wrong. G Suite for Education allows schools to control account access and requires schools obtain parental consent. We do not use personal information from users in primary or secondary schools to target ads. So I don't know if this is talking about kids, you know, who are then going home and using using YouTube or something like that. It's not really clear, you know, what their filing specifically is. Um, so what have your experiences been, Susan, with respect to Google and your understanding of, of privacy practices? And I'll, I'll say, I think you know this, but I very much drank the Google Kool-Aid. We've been a Google, you know, school, um, preceding me for like over 10 years. So i I feel very confident that I know there's a lot, there's, there's, there's districts actually close by where I am right now who <clears throat> have at their school board meetings, you know, had discussions about parental concerns, board concerns over privacy. Right. Well, I think the, 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 the challenge is that Google's uh, Google for Education, that specific suite of tools is compliant with COPPA and uh, they do not, um, if you, for instance, student, if you're using a commercial Gmail account, G, uh, Google may be scanning your emails in order to target you with ads. Um, they do not do that with their uh, G Suite for Education. Uh, per their terms of service. The challenge is that suites, tools like YouTube are outside of the G Suite for education and therefore are subject to their commercial terms of service versus the education terms of service. So if a student were to go to YouTube uh, while logged into their uh, school Google account, then yes, that information um, could be used to target them with ads, but not when they're using these G Suite for Education products. So the, the, it's kind of a, a legal um, definition where it's up to school districts to decide if they're going to allow students to access YouTube um, while logged into their accounts, then they need to get uh, verifiable parent permission um, in order to uh, have students under 13 use those accounts. So that's kind of where the, 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 the kind of the confusion lies is that you have to distinguish between what's G Suite for education and what's not G Suite for education. Yeah, third party YouTube, applications. YouTube is definitely on their commercial site. It's not part of G Suite for education. Right. So, uh, yeah, that, that is a great point. Uh, we have worked at our school and, and hopefully if you are in, a, if anybody listening to this is in an administrative role, you have this letter that Google gives you this copy of and you just modify, which you are sending to parents. And that is part of really, it should be the enrollment process. You know, in order to enroll in your school and participate, parents have to sign off on this. And in addition to the G Suite, you know, there, there's this place where you can list, you know, blogger or other, you know, Google products that are not part of G Suite, but they're ones that your school is going to determine that you're going to use. And so parents have signed off on that. Um, that's really important. So make sure that that is in place. And I'll try to find a link actually to that document because a few years ago, um, when we were having these discussions, we, you know, got in, got into all that. I have heard from one educator on Twitter, and I'd love if anybody else is having this conversation at your school. 
where they have looked closely at those terms of service, and that has caused them to change the way they are handling and, and allowing YouTube in, in their school. Yeah. I will say, uh, one of my favorite things to say is that video is the pencil of the 21st century. I mean, YouTube is a hugely important tool and helping our students not only acquire media literacy skills, so they are help, you know, they're developing the, the capacity to ascertain validity and, you know, develop trust and, you know, determine whether a source should be believed or not, all of those kinds of things. Also, the creative side of, of being able to communicate with media, all of that is really important. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do that with YouTube. But YouTube is such a currency today of video exchange that if you would happen to be in a school, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this, I, I won't say their specific name, but my sister-in-law is the librarian at a very large Texas school who until last year had blocked YouTube, even at their high school, for all students, even to access. Now, they just changed that and turned that off. And, you know, kids were, you know, on their phones, on their Wi-Fi plans, you know, watching watching YouTube. And, and so anyway, that has changed. But have you caught wind of anybody changing YouTube policies at school in response to all this? Because there's Google was fined thousands of dollars, and it had to do with, with COPPA or COPPA. Is COPPA the right way to say it instead of COPPA? Or? I, I think you can go either way. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So anyway, they, um, they're doing quite a bit on the creator side. And even as teachers, you know, if, if we're putting a, a video up on YouTube, we have to, uh, specify whether or not the primary audience is, is going right. to be under 13. And part of that is, you know, those videos are monetized differently. They're not tracked. Google handles them differently. So. Anyway, I think, you know, I don't expect this lawsuit to result, not that I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I right. wouldn't expect this to result in a finding for New Mexico. Um, and this may be some grand, political grandstanding, you know, on the part of this, this state official. Uh, but these are really important things for us to be able to respond to. And like I said, we've got Oklahoma school districts uh, very close to where I am right now who um, have have had some very uh, heated discussions at school board meetings about these kinds of things. And I don't think have the clarity about G Suite and how it's different and alleviating, you know, some parental concerns and fears about tracking and that kind of thing. And I think that's why it's so important for uh, educators to read the terms of service of all the apps that you're using um, mm -hmm. in an ideal universe, quite honestly. Um, and in, this, in the districts that are doing a really good job with this, uh, you have someone who actually reads through all of the privacy policies in terms of service for every app that's in the building and actually uh, signs a contract with each individual um, ed tech vendor, even the free apps. Uh, to make sure that uh, student data is being stored uh, privately and that it's allowing schools to comply with FERPA obligations. Um, I would say that uh, the overwhelming majority of schools are not at that point yet. Right. Um, but certainly it highlights the confusion and why it's important for educators to really understand and read terms of service and what the implications are like the, you know, the Google example we were using earlier, that's a perfect example of understanding what's included in G suite versus what's not or um, with uh, YouTube. And, you know, it's interesting that you're, you're talking about video as being such a valuable teaching tool. And, you know, I absolutely agree with you. And um, again, I think it all comes down to getting that parental consent and making sure that, 
um, being transparent um, in your policies. And I, I do think also it is worth mentioning that, you know, um, for all, uh, you know, it's absolutely critical that schools keep student data private. But I've always felt that student data is, quite honestly, at more risk from their use of commercial apps outside of school than uh, what they're doing in school. And so that kind of brings together the question of digital citizenship and what are we doing to teach students about, well, did you realize that if uh, you are watching videos on YouTube that your viewing habits are being tracked by Google and that that could be used to uh, influence the, not only the videos you see, but the ads that you see on the internet. Um, right. So there's that whole digital citizenship and digital literacy component. And I think a lot of educators, um, I think uh, an overwhelming majority of adults don't even fully understand those implications. So it really is, I really believe that a strong digital, that's one of the reasons why a strong digital citizenship program is so important because um, uh you know, people, I think a lot of people just don't understand um, how much, how not private so much of what they do online is. That right. Reason. We might segue real quick just to give you a chance. You, you've you written a book about digital citizenship and you also have an app about Twitter, right? So have, and is that your one book or have you published some other books since then? How did that book publishing come about? It is my one book. It's called Digital Citizenship, a Community-Based Approach, and it's available um, at the, um, from Corwin or from the Amazon website. Just do a search for Digital Citizenship in Bearden and it'll pop up. And uh, yes, I wrote that book because I it's it's a very it's not a heavy read. It's only, um, I don't know, 65 pages or something like that. But it's I, I wanted to just give a basic introduction to the basic concepts of digital citizenship for busy administrators who I recognize or busy teachers who I recognize have 50 billion other things to do um, and may not um uh, just need like a basic introduction to what the topic is and why it matters. And my hope was with the book that it would inspire people to maybe dig deeper and uh, do more learning on their own about the topic of digital citizenship. Yeah, I'll include that link in our show notes. And we use that as a summer book read. We always do a couple of book reads and our school did that as a summer book read a couple of years ago. And I think, you know, what's amazed me, that's why it's so important. I'm actually giving a chapel talk tomorrow on fear of missing out and uh, identity formation with social media. Uh, and so we've been having some really good conversations with our school, high school counselor, with our um, or our IT manager. And <clears throat> there's just there's a very low comfort level that many teachers and adults have talking about these kinds of issues. And so we need to not only you know, share this with students and be talking with students. But, you know, we've got to help adults feel more comfortable, you know, talking about these kinds of issues. And I think it needs to be part of our, our regular conversation. Sometimes we tend to, you know, hey, did, you know, we, we signed the acceptable use agreement, or the responsible use agreement. You know, we do these things at the beginning of the year. And, and we're, I think, doing a good job taking that opportunity to have some conversations and, and some presentations. But, Sometimes that can feel like we've just checked the box and it really needs to be something that we're doing on an ongoing basis. So in your work now, are you touching on digital citizenship issues or working with schools? Where do you, where do you see since, cause when did you publish? Was it about three or four years ago or how yeah. long ago was that? Yeah, it was 2016, I guess it came out. Yes. 
Um, so uh, currently, actually, I'm doing a webinar tomorrow on digital citizenship uh, as part of Digital Learning Day for Orlando County Public Schools, uh, which is very exciting for me. For uh, currently in my work at COSIN, uh, most of my work, uh, I think, would probably more align with, um, because I oversee the privacy and cybersecurity initiatives. So I think that the work I'm doing at COSIN more narrowly focuses on that only because I, I oversee the, the, the project directors who are working on those initiatives. Um, and those are more likely to be the topics that I'm giving presentations at conferences about. I'm talking about COSIN's resources on privacy and cybersecurity. So uh, that's been more my focus uh, since I uh, started on COSIN about a year and a half ago. But certainly, those are very important components of, of, of digital citizenship. Digital citizenship, of course, is much broader than just those two areas. But that's just been sort of where my focus has been as of late. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will actually be giving a webinar to, uh, tomorrow as well. So it is Digital Learning Day tomorrow, if you all didn't know. Uh, and so I am um, actually doing a little webinar for Paycom, which is kind of interesting. They uh, are locally here in Oklahoma City. They're a pretty big company. Uh, and so I am uh, going to get a chance to talk a little bit about uh, connected learning and ways in which uh, employees can extend their learning and, uh, I guess, it's called, um, well, what's the official title here? Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm have to scroll to find my official title. But anyway, it is going to be hopefully a good opportunity for a discussion. Yes, here it is. Better training through tech, improving employee engagement in the 21st century workplace. So I will include a link to that if anybody would like to check in and pay, paycom archives their, their webinars as well. So. Well, why don't we, uh, let's see, I got, we'll do a couple more Google articles and then we'll go to a security one since, you know, security is, is a focus of yours. Um, Google Translate. This was today on CNET. Google Translate now supports five more languages. It's up to 108 languages. And to tell a quick story, um, our makerspace middle school teacher, uh, Eric Sappington, ordered some um, clamps for, for phones so that students would be able to uh, do some stop motion recording and, and just be able to have, um, you know, uh, basically not a tripod, but a, a fixed uh, mount for phones when they were going to be doing some video recording in the makerspace. And uh, of course, ordered those from China and they had some some Chinese characters. And so I was uh, knowing that there were these different tools. I think HoloLens is one that Microsoft has. Um, but I, I just used Google Google Translate. In fact, it's still up on my phone. Uh, it said Anchor Beauty Lamp. That was what it was called. But anyway, being able to translate on the fly, because I don't speak Mandarin, you know, Mandarin characters into uh, into English. So have you had any experiences using translation tools, either in your, your travels or, or schoolwork, and have any thoughts about Google's continuing advance of that? Because that's pretty amazing, 108 languages. That is amazing, you know, and it's funny because I just um – I just uh, last December I, I purchased a book in Spanish, so I I, I do speak Spanish not fluently, but um, I probably read it better than I and understand it better than I speak it. But um, I do enjoy reading Spanish literature from time to time. And usually, what I do or what I used to do is I'd read the book and then like I'd read through a chapter just to sort of get the general overview, and then I would go back and I'd reread the chapter with a dictionary and I would look up the words that I didn't know. So usually I was able to understand enough so that I would get the basic concept of 
what the storyline was without having to know the individual words. But then I would go back and look up words and that way I would improve my vocabulary and just sort of get a deeper understanding of what was being said. And it was so cool because when I got this new book, I didn't have to use my dictionary anymore. I just took my phone and I just typed the words into Google Translate. It was fabulous. It was so much faster. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to think about what that's going to look like for digital books as well. You know, uh, my wife and I both, I think, with our eyesight have kind of reached this point where we're like, I don't yeah. know if I really want to buy any more paper books. I mean, yeah. it's so I nice like to get to increase the text size. But, you know, being able to tap and get additional information and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, we I think we're still a ways off from that vision that Google showed at Google I.O. maybe a couple years ago where they were doing that live Star Trek style, you know, translation. But I mean, that's it's coming. Right. Yeah. And and the, and the auto the automated, you know, answering and bots and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, let's see another Google uh, article. This is from Chrome on box on February 18th. It said, install these popular desktop apps and more on your Chromebook with flat pack. And if Jason was here, he would definitely be taking this one because he's our resident uh, Google and Android fanboy. But um, I was very interested that this has Minecraft on it. Now this is not to be clear something for, you know, the, the casual user. This is like sort of command line stuff. But if you aren't scared of the command line, uh, you know, you can, it, let's see, Minecraft, Spotify, VLC player, handbrake, audacity, GIMP, Inkscape, Flowblade. Uh, those are some of, of the desktop applications. And I've seen some other things like this for Windows more. It's probably for Mac too, but it just, you could make a pa- an installer package that made it really quick to be able to, ins- you know, install these different things. So have you, do you have a Chromebook? Have you played at all with, with, uh, with Chrome or Linux? What, what's your, uh, are, are you're a Mac person? I'm thinking. I, I use everything. Okay. <laughs> multilingual. I, yes, I'm multilingual. I have a, a Windows PC. I have a MacBook Air that I love. So I want to use everything, but Linux is not something I'm not a platform I'm super familiar with. So I had not heard of Flatpak before you had shared this article. So I'm, um really intrigued by this um especially by the ability uh to uh use these linux apps actually on a chromebook because then i'm thinking you could use them offline mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah it's there's a project called the crostini project uh that's for supporting linux uh linux apps and uh they, this has been something i guess promised um and it's you know we're uh look we're looking not at at one to one this next year but a, a year from now and we're really we visited schools in Dallas you know a few weeks ago and looking at platforms and so we're really looking hard right now at Chromebooks and uh, which we have like seven carts of at, at our school but we've got a bunch of iPads that are they're checked out and the way the iPads advanced you know it's stylus and now it's docking keyboard and all this but I just it's amazing when I went to the the uh, we have a conference that OU had, they have a K20 center and they put it on in the fall. And, you know, there are so many more schools with Chromebooks now, uh, mm-hmm. at least I've seen, you know, in Oklahoma than, than iPads and, and Apple's of course responded to that and they're, you know, reduced prices and things like that. But, um, you know, Minecraft is one of the things we love to utilize in our middle school. In fact, right now we're doing a screencasting lesson. Like 
we had kids fill out surveys about their teachers. And I think mine fell just either after we'd finished or still in our Minecraft lesson. So I was, and I, I kind of did well on that survey and I was telling our, our head of school, I was like, I think that's really a reflection that, that our kids get to do Minecraft in my class, you know, a little yeah. more than anything to do with me. But anyway, uh, thinking about, oh gosh, if we went to a Chromebook, you know, we wouldn't be able to do Minecraft. And I think even though this exists, this is more, this wouldn't be something right now deployed by school on an enterprise level. This would be like, you're a hobbyist, you have your own Chromebook, you want to try this stuff. But the potential to be able to do this, you know, in Chrome and then the security side of it, I mean, I know because I've managed, uh, you know, Windows PCs, uh, full-blown Mac OS, Chrome and iPad. Uh, Chrome is a lovely platform to manage as a tech director, you know, being built in the cloud. So... It is wonderful as a tech director. It's, uh, it's super convenient, very easy uh, to use. Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why Chromebooks have taken off in schools. Um, yeah. It's just easy to manage. Yep, definitely. All right. Well, let's pivot a little bit to um, a security question. We okay. may actually need to also pause just a little bit before the top of the hour. So maybe about five till. So we'll do a few more articles here. And then uh, if you have a geek of the week to share, I don't know if you've got that in mind, but be thinking of something to share here at the end. I almost put this article under uh, a tech correction or actually a, po- a political uh, topic. And there's a lot of political topics. We won't get to all of these, but this was Mashable on February 19th. Rudy Giuliani's typo-filled tweets are catnip for hackers spreading malware. And this is a pretty fascinating article from a media literacy standpoint because you've probably noticed, or if you haven't, you need to notice, that if you misspell certain domains, people have already registered those. And so in some cases, people are doing that, and they're using those to distribute malware, and they're basically knowing that people are going to mistype. Well, they have anticipated things that either Giuliani or other people are going to mistype, and so that has created links that directly goes to malware. So this wasn't a response like, oh, look at what he tweeted. Let's register the domain. These are domains that, uh, aren't they called domain squatters or something? Cyber squatters are some words for people who do this. And uh, in, in some cases, that was like they were going to try to sell the domain. Uh, this is a little bit different. But the cybersecurity company Malwarebytes, um, uh, the director of threat intelligence, uh, yeah, it's called typo squatting. So there you go. A new term. Yep. Typo squatting, a further wordplay on cyber squatting. And that was when someone registers a domain name or a trademark. So how do you help people navigate malware and the threat of, you know, clicking a link? And have, are, are you, I would guess you might be a family IT person. Do you have to do support for, you know, others in your immediate and extended family? Jason and I both sometimes reflect on how we're called to do that. Actually, I live pretty far geographically from uh, most of our extended family. So it's just me and my husband living in, D- in the DC area right now. So uh, no, actually I um, do what I do for tech support within my house is uh, my husband is a uh, electrical engineer and he loves dealing with hardware. And I, my background was technical background was in database administration and I enjoy dealing with software. So when we have a hardware issue, um, I always punt it to my husband. And when he has a software issue, he always punts it to me. And so that way we're just perfectly matched for each other because <laughs> there you go. You've got it all divided out. Who's going to take care of what then? But you're right. Uh, you know, teaching, um, 
when it comes to school districts and trying to improve their security posture, uh, user education is so critically important because you're only as secure as your weakest link. And so often uh, that weakest link is a human being clicking on uh, a phishing app or phishing email. And it's been interesting. There have been a vast, tremendous increase in the number of reported ransomware attacks in school districts just within uh, the past year. Uh, and hackers have, are targeting school districts because they know that a lot of times school districts don't necessarily, especially when you're talking small districts, they don't have the really large school IT teams. In some cases, it may be, you know, the person who is teaching a period of math and coaching the softball team and then doing tech support the rest of the time. And that may be the only tech person in that district in a lot of uh, smaller and rural districts. So uh, what happens is that but these districts are just as much at risk as, say, a really large district uh, like, you know, Boston Public Schools or something like that. So the, the, the risks are still the same. It's just uh, a question of scale. But. Uh, so you have so often uh, that's a lot of the times these smaller districts, not always because large districts get hit as well, uh, that are, are hit with these uh, ransomware attacks. And so it's it's so important to educate users uh, about uh, cybersecurity issues. One district that um, does a really great job with that is Raytown Quality Schools in Missouri. Uh, the tech director, Melissa Tevenkamp, her team. Uh, there's a really great job creating privacy and cybersecurity videos that are, they're pretty, they're really funny actually. Mm -hmm. They're short, but they're just great snippets just to try to educate people, um, to get them to, to think before cl clicking on that email. Absolutely. And, uh, because it is so important and it's not just important professionally, but it's important for people personally. And sometimes those, uh, especially when you get what are called spear phishing, where, uh, they are targeting, uh, you know, they get some information about the business and then they target specific users with yeah. information like you might have the C a letter from the CEO or email from the CEO, which really isn't the CEO, but it looks like it comes from the CEO yeah. asking for uh, pay stub information, W2 information. Um, and uh, so, you know, someone forwards that information thinking they're sending it to the CEO and they're not sending it to the CEO. So, uh, so that is definitely why um, user education is so critically important. Absolutely. We had so many different phishing attacks and spear phishing attacks and people, you know, pretending to be our head of school. And, you know, we had we actually had some cases where we had some faculty staff send some iTunes gift cards that were being requested. And, you know, yeah. these things happen. Uh, I filed uh, an actual in-person, in the face-to-face -face police report with our local village police. Uh, the last semester, I was our tech director on something where somebody was trying to impersonate one of our staff members and change her uh, direct deposit information and, you know, targeting the business office and all that stuff. So it's yeah. prob probably... We can, we don't, can't repeat this too much. I've, I actually got a, I'm a finalist for another TEDx locally, um, on technology fear therapy. Maybe I'll hit you up to, you know, get Ooh. some suggestions because part of it is just talking about passwords. You know, use a unique password on every single website. Make sure that password is long and complex and use a password manager so that you can keep track of those things and turn on the two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication wherever you can. Those are the, the key things. And we've, I think this is maybe our third year of requiring 
paying all faculty staff to have that two-factor authentication turned on for Google, which, you know, isn't a complete, <coughs> it's going to prevent everything, especially if people want to individually target you. But um, anyway, those those things are important. Um, let me uh, do one other article related to clicking. This is actually up in the politics. I'll, I'll reference all the articles, but the Atlantic has a couple great articles talking about elections, disinformation, and bots. So they had a January 7th article called The Future of Politics is Bots Drowning Out Humans. So, by the way, this will make you rather depressed <laughs> thinking about moving into our election season. Uh, then on February 10th, they had a great article called The 2020 Election Will Be a War of Disinformation. And actually, that is the is the best article I think I have read connecting the dots about a lot of of how disinformation is being waged today and just how really we can't get media literacy information and education to enough people fast enough and I think we're really we're in a dark time with with a lot of of this and and then the last article was from the New York Times and this was on February twentieth. Uh, it's titled Lawmakers are Warned that Russia is Meddling to Reelect Trump. Of course, I didn't watch the debates last night, but I guess part of what, you know, has come out is that Bernie Sanders, you know, is evidently, uh, you know, a Russian favorite and they're talking about all this. But in that New York Times article, it says older U.S. adults are particularly being targeted as specifically Russia seeks to get them to share disinformation on social media. And I've read several things about that where it's not just, you know, people setting up fake accounts, but they're trying to seed this information. And, and, it, and if you read Reddit, and, you know, other other places, I mean, <laughs> the articles, the links, the things that are being placed there, um, people have different agendas for for wanting to do that. So any thoughts about the dangers? Do you have a solution? How how can we help all the older adults in our lives uh, be a little more savvy and not uh, just, you know, quickly click this link that emotionally grabs them or makes them upset? That's a great question. And, you know, um, certainly happens in my Facebook feed all the time um, where I see people sharing information that's either flat out untrue or uh, grossly a manipulation of facts. And um, it can be a real challenge because uh, what um, you know, there's been a lot of research done on the effects of cognitive bias and how people will choose to believe information that already agrees with their preconceived notions, which is one of the reasons why this disinformation is so effective, because if um, if you have uh, the Russians that are, for instance, trying to, uh, you know, get people to stir up dissent and get people to, you know, hate one another because they have different political opinions, then people are going to be more likely to believe something negative said about uh the candidate that they don't want to win the election or about people who support the candidate that they don't want to win the election. So it is uh, very challenging, especially, I think, because so many older Americans grew up, you know, in a time when, uh, you know, I mean, I just think back to when I was a real little kid, but Walter Cronkite, you know, and there was only a few sources of information and you could rely upon those sources for information to be reliable. Whereas nowadays uh, there's so much, People just don't understand what the difference between a reliable or an unreliable website is and uh, don't understand that, uh, that they're, they're sharing information that is not factually true or is not from or is from a very biased source or is from a 
um, a source that is is just publishing disinformation, yeah. not just biased, but literally a disinformation site. Right. Um, yeah. People that are doing politics and not journalism, or they're or or, or doing disinformation. So I'll uh, include a link in the show notes. I listened to a a great podcast uh, called No Dumb Questions. And uh, Destin is uh, the the guy behind Smarter Every Day, which is a great YouTube channel. They did a fantastic, I've said it a bunch of times, a three-part on disinformation. They did a Facebook, a Twitter, and a YouTube, and they are just fantastic. But they talked about just news and journalism. It was really good. I listened to it this weekend. And, um, you know, one of the things that they, they interviewed a journalism professor, and he said, you know, instead of thinking about journalists as just people, we need to think about journalism as an act. And any of us can engage in journalism, but when we're intentionally trying to persuade somebody for a particular, you know, thing, whether it's, you know, selling a product like advertising or it could be political, we're really not engaging in journalism. We're engaging in something else, whether that's, you know, marketing, uh, advertising, or it's, uh, you know, political persuasion. Propaganda. Uh, propaganda. There you go. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, the, this is where, just and to tell you personally, I think I mean I'm going to try to write some articles. Hopefully, here in the next couple couple years, I just think media literacy it's just so important. And thinking about higher education and where I'm going to land, maybe I'll you know I I, I love what I'm getting to do right now. It's wonderful. Not not saying I'm you know making any quick and abrupt changes, but I I do think that you know getting to teach media literacy to our fifth and sixth graders is fantastic. But seeing the need for this across the, the whole scope of, of age and experience, it's just uh, it's pretty, pretty huge. So um, we are not going to go to the top of the hour today. I think we'll I actually I apologize, but um, we're going to got a, uh, a service upstairs. I'm going to go join my family for and but I'm thrilled that that Susan and I have been able to to uh, get together. There's. A couple articles I'll mention, and then we'll do some some geeks of the week. Uh, this is just some of these are just kind of interesting and just kind of quick. Ars Technica today uh, had an article. Apple has told movie makers that villains can't use iPhones, only the good folks. So they said they were questioning, you know, how are they going to enforce that? But I thought that was kind of funny. But it also goes to media literacy, right? How many kids think about product placement, right? Uh, how many times have you seen? I know that our daughters watched. Um, what was the one where the uh, they did the web show? Oh gosh, I'm gonna. I'm showing my age with my inability to to think on the fly, but anyway, it was um, it was a Disney Channel show. But anyway, they would always I think they made the apple into a pear or they covered it up. But you know, product placements yeah. don't oftentimes happen uh, accidentally. You know, they happen purposefully. Um, so uh, I've been wondering about the Chinese probe on the on the moon. It's not the dark side, right? It's just the far side because the, the far right. side gets lit as well. Uh, but there was an article from CNET today also about uh, the probe and disco- discovering things and just, you know, spoiler alert, no aliens, you know, discovered yet there. But I was wondering about, you know, what is that? Because it's been there about a year. I think it landed in January. And then this would be one that we could like talk a really long time, but I'll toss this one to you just for a quick feedback. Ars Technica today, Clarence Thomas regrets the ruling that Ajit Pai, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he's um, FCC chairman, I think, used to kill net neutrality. So anyway, I think you've been involved with this, right? Haven't you with E-rate and the ways in which, um, you know, we've changed class telecommunications is not classified data is not classified as a telecommunication service. Therefore it's subject to different regulation and things like that. Did you get involved in any of that kind of stuff or were you able to not have to worry about 
E-rate and those fun things. Well, it's kind of separate from E-rate, but definitely I was interested in the whole net neutrality um, debate. Um, I was definitely pro net neutrality um, and disappointed um, that uh, the FCC made the decisions that it did. Uh, but uh, definitely it's interesting now seeing um, how certain states are now wanting to pass their own laws um, uh, about net neutrality, which I think is really fascinating um, and actually uh, could actually have this in, in the long run could actually have a very similar effect to a national nationwide net neutrality, because I think it would be very difficult for providers to have one program for the state of California and then another program. Exactly. So well, kind of like see how it plays out. And kind of like privacy, we're seeing Europe do some things. And so if companies are going to have to, you know, meet GDPR requirements, then maybe that's going to, you know, be a privacy benefit for all of us. If it's a service that they're going to be offering nationally or internationally, not just, not just locally. All right. Was there a geek of the week that you want to share as any kind of app or website or something you want to recommend to people as something to check out maybe that you've been playing with lately or. Well, you know, I was just thinking I'm going to add to the show, to these, uh, to this document. Um, I had written a series, you know, because we talked about privacy and cybersecurity today. I'd written a series of blog posts for the future of privacy forum on their website, FerpaSherpa.org, in which I um, looked at the NIST guidelines for creating passwords and uh, wrote blog posts for educators on things like how to create a secure password. You know, you and I talked earlier about um, how to use, how to create secure passwords using a, uh, you know, password manager to help you remember them. But also there's some other security tips, uh, like, you know, how to keep your information safe when you're using Wi-Fi at Starbucks or something like that. So I'm going to post a link to those uh, posts in the show notes because those are specifically geared towards non-techie people uh, to help you keep your data safe. So that's going to be my tech tip of the week. Awesome. And if you could drop the links to the... Uh um, the cybersecurity tip videos that you were mentioning that Missouri uh, school district and the, the tech director, that would be awesome as well. Um, I've got a couple um, video annotation tools. I learned about several of these last summer at the uh, digital Institute, the, the summer Institute on digital literacy and that Renee Hobbs puts on, it was in Rhode Island last summer and it's been for a long time this year. It's in Chicago. Um, but, um, video ant, which is ant.umn.edu. It's at the University of Minnesota. There's one called via logs and then a new one that Richard Byrne shared this week called, uh, it's just timeline.ly. Um, then I've got a link to a Google doc. So video annotation, you know, being able to comment and have discussions and your students create a video and then you can have like a threaded discussion, you know, alongside the video. Cool. It's actually something I think I'm going to do next year for my sixth graders um, as I kind of differentiate that curriculum for them. And then Richard, who if you don't follow Richard, he's like Mr. EdTech uh, yeah. tool guy. Yeah, RM Burn is his Twitter. Um, he had a nice link to a YouTube uh, channel called PowerCert. And so they have really good animated videos about a lot of different things. And those can be useful as we try to, you know, educate folks on digital literacy, media literacy, whatever <laughs> our hat might be. So Susan, where can people find you when you're not here on a Wednesday night, generously giving up your time to join us on the EdTech Situation Room? Uh, probably you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at S underscore Bearden. Uh, so please find me on the Twitter reps. Um, probably I think uh, Twitter and LinkedIn are uh, the two social media platforms that I'm probably the most active on, um, at least professionally. So uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm 
Susan M. Bearden on LinkedIn. So just look me up. But um, I love interacting with folks. And definitely um, I'm this has been so much fun for me. Wes, you know, I was just thinking, when did we first meet? Was it at Miami Device? I bet it was. Yeah, it's probably through Felix. So yeah, it's probably through Felix. I think that's when we first met for the first time in face to face after having uh, been connected um, on through social media for so many years. And it's a uh, it's always a pleasure when I get to connect with different people and then I actually get to meet them live face to face. Absolutely, so, yeah. Absolutely. Shout out for the Atlas Conference too. I don't don't know if I'm gonna. We're, we, there's a slight chance we still may be able to go, but I uh, I, uh, yeah. Are you gonna go this year? I'm gonna be there. Yes. Okay, fantastic. And. Uh, is it in Chicago? It is, is it going to be? Okay, yes. that's what I was saying. In April, so the yeah. Atlas Conference, great, great uh, conference for leaders of independent schools, so technology leaders. Uh, so I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, and uh, I have my curriculum for our fifth and sixth grade digital media literacy at mdtech.cassidy.org, and you can find all of those links in our show notes, and you can find very small thirty-two kilobit audio versions as well as. 360p video versions, links to the YouTube channel. You can subscribe to all of that at edtechsr.com. So thanks so much to Susan Bearden for joining us. We encourage everyone to stay savvy and stay safe out there. And uh, hope you, you will catch us again on the EdTech Situation Room. Absolutely. Night, everybody.